Hello, my name's Dom, and this is your guide to making it through med school. It's Redwood Ramblings. Hello and welcome once again to Redwood Ramblings. Today we will be attempting to cover the topic of vascular drugs. Happy New Year to you all. To all your listeners, I hope you had a wonderful break, if you indeed you did have one. We're back today with a very special guest, a first-timer, in fact, on the podcast. Let's welcome Dr. Dom Padfield. Hello, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan, long-time listener, first-time guest. Uh, yeah, really thrilled to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, Dom. First and foremost, I ask all of our CTFs, what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, for dinner last night, what did I have? I believe I had um, a soup. It was a carrot and red pepper soup with a side of wedges and some homemade flatbreads. Oh, homemade flatbreads, really, did you? That's interesting. Simple enough recipe by the sounds of things. Yes, a very simple recipe. Um... I think everyone's wondering how long we're going to keep this up. We're going to keep it up for the whole of the episode. All right, what are we covering today then, Dom? Today's episode all stems from an email we received to Redwood Ramblings, which said, Dear Redwood Ramblings, I was hoping to have an episode on the actions and usage of vascular drugs. They tend to make me dizzy. Thank you. And that is from Oscar, who was was one of our third years. Unfortunately, he has now moved academies because um, the students have all moved on to a to a new academy now, and we miss him dearly. However, I'm sure he will still be listening to the podcast. Okay, that sounds like a great idea. So when we talk about vascular drugs, are we referring to anything in particular? Today, we're going to be covering cardiovascular drugs mainly. So we're going to be covering antihypertensive medication, and some of the really common medications that we use in cardiac disease. As normal, we open up with some questions. So have you got some questions for us? Yes, I do have some questions. And today we're just going to have three opening MCQs. So the first question is, a patient is being reviewed for hypertension and it is decided he needs to be started on medical therapy. He is known renal artery stenosis. Which drug should be avoided? Question number two. An 83-year-old patient is being reviewed in GP. They have a past medical history of type 2 diabetes. What ambulatory blood pressure is acceptable for this patient? Question three. A patient has been discharged from hospital following an MI and they underwent successful PCI with stent insertion. But which of these medications are non-selective beta agonists? Okay, thank you for our questions. And at this point, we'd like to visit our case for today. Yes, today's case. We have a 68-year-old male who is being reviewed in the GP surgery. He has a past medical history of hypertension, and he's been on amlodipine for three years. Six months ago, he was also given ramipril due to ongoing hypertension and has come in with his home blood pressure readings from over the last week for review. These blood pressure readings average out at 153 over 87 millimetres of mercury. Okay, so that's our case for today. So we'll bear that in mind as we come back and, and revisit the drugs and maybe how we treat this patient. Now it's been a while, but it is time for his return. It's the Redwood Riddler. Hello, I am Harry, 
the Redwood Riddler. You may have seen some of my work up on the notice board in Redwood. I am here on the podcast to deliver further riddle to you. Redwood Riddler, what is your riddle today? Here's this week's riddle. What word is pronounced the same if you remove four of its five letters? Thank you there, the Redwood Riddler, and we will find out the answer to that later on. Right then, where do we start really? What, what's, what, what's the best way you want to do this? Well, I thought maybe we could begin with thinking about treating hypertension, and maybe we'll go from there, and then we can visit some of the other drugs that I think are probably important to touch upon. So when we're talking about hypertension, we start by reviewing someone's blood pressure. And acceptable blood pressures, normally for a, a patient who's first coming in, they're less than 80 years old, you want their blood pressure to be 135 over 85 or less from their um, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring or their home blood pressure readings. If this isn't the case, and you've got some home blood pressure readings or an ambulatory blood pressure reading that shows the average is higher than this, you need to start medication. And we have a couple of things that we need to look at. First of all, we need to know whether they're what their age is, as we mentioned. So if they're over 55, then we're going to start them on a calcium channel blocker to start with. If they're less than 55, we're going to start them on an ACE inhibitor or possibly an angiotensin receptor blocker. Furthermore, if they've got type 2 diabetes and hypertension, you're going to start them on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, an angiotensin receptor blocker. If they're black African or African Caribbean family origin of any age, you're going to start them on a calcium channel blocker. So why don't we find out what these drugs are and what they do? So we'll start with the ACE inhibitors. So these do what they say on the tin, basically. So if you remember your renin, angiotensin, aldosterone pathway. So renin, released from the kidneys essentially, the juxtagromelular apparatus. That renin is released and converts angiotensinogen, which comes from the liver, to angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is converted to angiotensin 2 by angiotensin converting enzyme. And this is what we're blocking. So angiotensin 2 has got multiple effects on the body. Um, arteriolar vasoconstriction, aldosterone secretion, and water retention, and it does this um, by aldosterone secretion and, and also via ADH secretion, and it has increased sympathetic activity. So overall, what angiotensin 2 does is it increases blood pressure, and this is in response to decreased glomerular perfusion. If you want to decrease blood pressure, we can stop angiotensin converting enzyme to stop converting angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 and that way reduce blood pressure. So the examples of ACE inhibitors we probably hopefully have heard of these. Ramipril and lisinopril are the most commonly used. So the normal action of A of angiotensin 2 is to De- is to constrict the efferent arteriole which increases renal perfusion. So if we have an ACE inhibitor we increase, we vasodilate the efferent arteriole, which decreases renal perfusion that way. But also if you've got renal artery stenosis, so the afferent arteriole, the arteriole coming in is stenosed, that's decreasing renal perfusion. So if you add an ACE inhibitor to someone with renal artery stenosis, they can go quite quickly into renal failure, have acute kidney injury due to 
this decreased renal perfusion which is happening suddenly. So if you've got a patient with known renal artery stenosis, you cannot give them an ACE inhibitor or indeed an angiotensin II receptor blocker, an ARB, because that works in a very similar way. And you have to double check their UNEs soon after they've started the ACE inhibitor to ensure that they don't have renal artery stenosis. Okay, so that's ACE inhibitors. And you mentioned earlier that the other thing they might be started on is a calcium channel blocker. Is that right? Yes. So calcium channel blockers will be the other medication that you're started on if you're over 55 or if you're black African or African Caribbean family origin, no matter what age you are. And as you students probably hopefully remember, calcium is quite an important iron in the body and it has a lot of different roles so it allows for the production of action potentials but it's also used as a cell signaling molecule within cells so you've got vaulted gated calcium channels and these are blocked by calcium channel blocker drugs and this can have a number of effects uh, number of effects so we're going to concentrate on two main effects um, of these drugs now, when we talk about calcium channel blockers, we furthermore, we split them down into non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers and dihydropyridines uh, calcium channel blockers as well. When we talk about hypertension, we talk about using dihydropyridines and commonly amlodipine is the most commonly used. These act on the peripheral smooth muscle and allows allow for peripheral vasodilation, which is how they reduce the blood pressure um, and they do this by as I said acting on the calcium channels. I think it's worth mentioning after we've covered hypertension about the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers and what they're used for. Okay why don't we pause there and find out why something is called what it's called. Now when's that from? Well is it because it's Latin? Why is that word called that word? It's dometymology. That's right, time for your first Dometomology of 2024. Now, I couldn't find anything too interesting about all the things we've been discussing, So, but I did come across something that I thought was quite fascinating, and that is to do with the muscle sartorius. Now, if you remember, the sartorius muscle, it originates from the anterior superior iliac spine, the isis, and it crosses over the tibia and inserts in the medial part of the tibia. So it's involved in the flexion of the hip and flexion of the knee. And it comes from the Latin sartor, which actually means tailor. And there's a couple of theories about the origin um, of, of why it's named after a tailor. But the, the main thought is that actually it relates to this cross-legged posture that tailors used to sit in when they were doing their sewing. And the fact that the muscle itself is predominantly used in creating that cross-legged posture for us. So that's your dometomology. Now when's that from? Well, is it because it's Latin? Why is that word called that word? It's dometomology. So when we've got a patient, as we mentioned our case earlier, they were already on some medication. So what are our other options when they're already on these medications? Yes, that's a really good question. So as hopefully a lot of the students remember, this is good, easy exam fodder for you to know. So they're going to either have been started on an ACE inhibitor, possibly an angiotensin receptor blocker, or a calcium channel blocker. Those are our two options, ACE inhibitor slash ARB or calcium channel blocker. Now, if they come in and they've been reviewed, they have ongoing hypertension despite that medication, they're going to have another medication added on. So that could be a calcium channel blocker if they're already on an ACE inhibitor. If they're already on a calcium channel blocker, it can be an ACE inhibitor. 
There is, however, another option at this point, and that's to add on a thiazide-like diuretic. And this is really going to be dependent on a few things, whether the patient is tolerating their ACE inhibitor, whether they're tolerating the calcium channel blocker. So common side effects of amlodipine, the calcium channel blocker, is ankle swelling. And that doesn't mean a patient needs to stop it, but it depends how much that's affecting them. And everyone knows the common side effect of your ACE inhibitor is a cough. And that's often where you're going to switch them to another medication. Uh, you're going to try them on an ARB if they can't tolerate a, a dry cough that's persisting. Okay, so you've told us about ACE inhibitors, ARBs, calcium channel blockers. So what about this thiazide diuretics? How are they working? Yeah, thiazide diuretics, um, they work in the kidneys. They work on the proximal segment of the distal convoluted tubule, which is part of the nephron uh, in the kidney. So the thiazide diuretics, they decrease the reabsorption of sodium. So sodium is filtered out and then it's reabsorbed um, in the proximal segment of the distal convoluted tubule. And when it's reabsorbed, when the, the sodium is reabsorbed, that increases blood pressure okay that keeps blood pressure up if you decrease this reabsorption you allow some sodium to be excreted then you're essentially able to lower the blood pressure okay so these medications uh, include bendroflumothiazide and indapamide so at this point we can revisit our case we've got a patient they've come in with hypertension essentially they've been on amlodipine which is a calcium channel blocker uh, they've been added on Ramapril six months ago due to ongoing hypertension. So they're on a calcium channel blocker and an ACE inhibitor. They come back in with home blood pressure readings over the last week, which average out 153 over 87. So that's still high. So what do we do now? So we've already essentially given them two medications. As long as they're tolerating both of those medications well, we add a thiazide diuretic, the one we just mentioned. So we could have added the thiazide after the amlodipine, so as a second-line therapy, but it was decided that an ACE inhibitor, which is more common, was added. So at this point, as a stage 3 therapy, we're going to add a thiazide diuretic. Now, at this point, you're going to review them, and if they come back in with hypertension, you're going to be uh, offering them a fourth line drug so it's a lot of drugs for hypertension but hypertension is a really important it's a really important condition that we treat okay it reduces the risk of a lot of other conditions of cardiac disease strokes all sorts of diseases that we're, we know about so at this point if you've got a patient and they're on three medications which are probably going to be an ACE inhibitor slash an ARB, a calcium channel blocker, and a thiazide-like diuretic they've still got elevated blood pressure then we're going to take their some blood tests okay we're gonna we need to check on their potassium and if their potassium is less than 4.5 we add a low dose spironolactone and if their potassium is over 4.5 we add an alpha blocker or a beta blocker so i just want to talk about spironolactone first of all so spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist aldosterone normally has an effect on the renal distal convoluted tubule aldosterone normally increases sodium reabsorption which increases blood pressure. And at the same time, it increases potassium excretion normally. So if you stop the excretion of potassium, you're gonna get a mild increase in potassium. So it's important that you measure the, the 
potassium. If the potassium is over 4.5, you don't want to be allowing that potassium to be creeping up because, as we know, hyperkalemia is quite dangerous. So you're going to give them spironolactone if their blood potassium is less than 4.5 because that blood potassium might creep up once you give them spironolactone. Now, the other option is an alpha blocker or beta blocker. And if I may, I think we're just going to talk about these generally. So they're an option, and, and I'm going to talk about how both of these drugs work uh, as, as separately and what else they're used for. That sounds like a really good idea, Dom. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so let's start with alpha blockers. A, start there, the top of the alphabet. So there's a couple of things we use. So alpha blockers, and particularly in particular selective alpha-1 blockers, these work by blocking normal receptors which respond to catecholamines, and catecholamines being norepinephrine and epinephrine. Normally norepinephrine and epinephrine cause um, vasoconstriction. So if you're blocking those receptors, so the catecholamines, you allow for more vasodilation, which as we know is going to be able to treat hypertension. So doxazacin is commonly used in as step four hypertension. So remember, if our blood potassium is high, we don't want to increase it with an aldosterone antagonist. So we're going to add an alpha blocker and doxazacin can be used at this point. Another drug to note is tamsulosin, which is also um, a selective alpha one blocker, but that's used in um, benign prostatic hyperplasia. But if you've got someone with very low blood pressure, you need to be careful in using tamsulosin because it might have some systemic effects less so than doxazacin, but it might have some systemic effects on reducing their blood pressure even further and putting older um, people particularly at risk of falls. So beta blockers, um, like alpha blockers, these block beta receptors. So beta 1 receptors are part of the sympathetic nervous system and they're found throughout the body and their stimulation is also by catecholamines, but they act a little bit differently. So they cause renin release. Um, their, uh, their sympathetic activity increases heart rate and so stopping them actually reduces their heart rate uh, this is beta 1 receptors now beta 2 receptors they're similar but they're predominantly found in airway smooth muscles and they have effects of smooth muscle relaxation so the beta 1 receptors which are part of the sympathetic nervous system normally when they're stimulated they cause renin release which is going to cause an increase in blood pressure and increase heart rate which again might increase blood pressure those are commonly at atenolol bisoprolol metoprolol okay so they're the beta 1 antagonists or beta 1 blockers then you have your non-selective antagonists so propanolol carvedilol labetalol these drugs are non-selective, so they act on both receptors. And you might be familiar as well with um, short-acting beta agonists, which are used in inhalers to treat asthma, to re relax smooth muscles. So it's really important that we don't prevent that with, with these beta blockers, that we don't use beta blockers in patients with asthma. All right, thanks, Dom. Now, uh, is it a good time now to go and, and mention, uh, you said about these other calcium channel blockers earlier? Yes, absolutely. So let's just talk about the non-dihydropyridine. So some beta blockers are used to treat atrial fibrillation, okay? They reduce the heart rate. So these non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers um, are actually used to treat atrial fibrillation. So the non-dihydropyridines are more specific for the atrioventricular and the sinoatrial nodes, and thus they slow heart rate and they, and they reduce contractility of the heart. So they're quite useful in AF, but 
if you've got a reduced ejection fraction, okay, so your contractility is already reduced, you, your, your heart's not pumping well, you cannot use verapamil and diltiazem when there's a reduced ejection fraction because you're possibly going to reduce that even f further. And if you've got a heart block, okay, second or third degree heart block, you can't be using these drugs either because they're acting on the nodes and, and thus you could put someone into complete heart block and that, that, can, be, um, that can be really dangerous. Okay, have you got any other drugs that you want to mention while we're here? Yeah, so on the note of heart failure, um, commonly used are loop diuretics, so your fruzamide, bumetanide. These act on the loop of Henle. They reduce sodium chloride reabsorption in the ascending limb. So they prevent the movement of free water back into circulation. Okay, and remember, in heart failure, when you've got increased um, water, you have water retention, you can get that on the lungs, you can get that on the legs, and thus you want to decrease the movement of free water back into circulation and pee it out, and that's exactly what loop diuretics do. Okay, it is time now to find out what the answer to that riddle that we heard earlier. And if you remember, the riddle was, what word sounds the same if you remove four of its five letters? The answer to that riddle was Q. Q-U-E-U-E. -E. Of course it was Q. Remove four of its letters to leave Q. Another drug commonly used in patients with heart disease, cardiovascular disease, particularly things like angina, or people who have had um, previous cardiac events, often nitrates can be used. So nitrates are drugs that convert are drugs that are converted into nitric oxide once they're inside the body. And basically, in short, nitric oxide causes vasodilation. So it, when you have atherosclerosis, normal nitric oxide synthesis by the endo endothelial cells is impaired. So in, normally in the body, you have nitric oxide synthesis, which is done by endothelial cells. And when you've got a lot of atherosclerotic disease in your arteries, your, those endothelial cells aren't able to produce that that nitric oxide. And so, so having those drugs that allows for that vasodilation that you would otherwise not have. All right, Dom, thank you for that. So there's quite a lot of information there. Hopefully you, you, you're able to take something away from here. So I think now is probably a good time to revisit those questions we had at the start. Yeah, absolutely. So question one was, a patient is being reviewed for hypertension and it's decided he needs to be started on medical therapy. He has known renal artery stenosis. Which drug should be avoided? A, amlodipine. B, spironolactone. C, indapamide. D, lisinopril. And E, Fruzamide. Okay, so I think from, from what you said earlier, A, amlodipine, that's a calcium channel blocker. I can't remember anything about renal artery stenosis in there. B, spironolactone was an aldosterone antagonist. C, indapamide is a thiazide-like diuretic, which is something to do with potassium, but not renal artery stenosis. D, lisinopril is a ACE inhibitor. Now, you said earlier about ACE inhibitors and renal artery stenosis, so it's probably D, lisinopril. Absolutely, it is well done, Dom. Okay, question two. An 83-year-old patient is being reviewed in GP. They've got a past medical history of type 2 diabetes. What ambulatory blood pressure is acceptable for this patient? The options are A, 181 over 102, B, 76 over 44, C, 159 over 92, or D, 142 over 84. 
Okay, uh, tricky one. Not sure if we covered this or not. Um, so A, 181 over 102, that's really high. Wouldn't be acceptable, wouldn't be happy with that. Um, the second option, 76 over 44, that's very low. I'd be quite concerned if a patient had that. Um, I'd probably be giving them some, some fluids as quickly as possible. Uh, C, 159 over 92. I don't think that's acceptable. So I guess the last one to go for is 142 over 84. Yeah, absolutely. 142 over 84 is the correct answer. Now, we said earlier that normally acceptable blood pressure is 135 over 85. However, when you've got a patient with who is over 80, you are going to accept a blood pressure uh, at home blood pressure or an ambulatory blood pressure of 145 over 85 anything less than that okay is acceptable okay thanks okay final question a patient has been discharged from hospital following an mi they underwent successful pci with stent insertion which of these medications are non-selective beta antagonists okay so a atenolol b bisoprolol c labetalol or d carbimazole Yes, so first of all, carbimazole is, is not a beta blocker, is it? That's just a, a, an outright red herring. Yeah, that's right, Dom. It's not a beta blocker at all. It's used in the treatment of um, cluster headaches, I believe. Yes. And etanolol, bisoprolol, or betalol. Okay, I think etanolol and bisoprolol are your your beta 1 antagonists, your beta 1 blockers, and labetalol is a non-selective beta antagonist. Yes, that is correct. Well done. Right, well... That's the question. So that's that's it, I guess. That's um y your main vascular drugs. We've talked about hypertension and, and a few others that are used to to treat sort of cardiovascular disease. I hope Oscar, that's covered a lot of what you wanted to know. If there's anything else, then you know, throw us an email and we can cover it in the podcast at a later date for you. Tom, uh, thanks so much for coming in. That's, it's really been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, I, I guess there's only one thing left to do, and that's for you to say goodbye. Okay, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>